Isn't it wonderful to be in a free nation where you can gather together with people of like precious faith and celebrate Jesus? It's, it's not that way all over the world. There, there are lots of problems and challenges in much of the world. As a matter of fact, when communism was taking over Eastern Europe, there was an incident that occurred that's unforgettable. They came into a small town with the soldiers and they gathered all the people in the town square. And the leading officer of the military group addressed them and said, there's going to be no more church. The church is locked and chained. We may use it for something else, but there's going to be no more church. If you are caught with a Bible, a New Testament, or even a songbook, you will be imprisoned or executed. All that is over. Well, they had a custom in those Eastern European countries. Every year for 40 days leading up to Easter time, Resurrection Sunday, the people would greet each other by saying, Christ is risen. And the answer was always the same. He is risen indeed. They did this for 40 days. All the greetings were, Christ is risen. And the response was always, He is risen indeed. And so after this hour-long lecture about there's going to be no more Christianity here, there's going to be no more worship here, isn't it amazing how much the devil fears Christianity and how afraid he is of the Word of God. The officer said, is there anyone who wishes to respond? And a teenage boy said, yes, sir, I would like to respond. He said, come on up. He came up and stood on the platform, and the officer said, before you say anything, young man, these soldiers have live rounds of ammunition if you say something you shouldn't say, you will be shot right on the spot. Do you understand? He said, I understand. He said, all right, then you may speak. And he stepped to the front of the platform and he called out as loud as he could, Christ is risen! And the people shouted back, He is risen indeed. And they shot the boy on the spot. He gave his life to be able to proclaim the marvelous truth that brings us together here today. I want you to say it with me. I'm going to say Christ is risen, and each time I say it, I want you to call back to me loudly, forcefully, that you mean it, that you know him. It's important. You call back, he is risen indeed. Are you ready? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, let's give him praise. <laughs> praise his name. We are here because he's risen. We are here because he gave us love for each other and love for him. And there's nothing so wonderful as living life with true love, the kind of love 
that he gives. Bless his holy name. Church not only has the grace of God and the truth of God and the power of God to save and to deliver, but the word is loved here. Now, as these children were celebrating the uh, Awana program, teaching them the word, I couldn't forget a story that I heard Bill Gothard tell some years ago about a minister who went into an insane asylum. There was a man there who was related to someone that he knew, and so he's going to visit with him. The man's mind was so deteriorated until he could not learn one small verse of Scripture. This man who visited with him, after seeing his condition, he would teach him one or two words at a time. For God. For God. And the man would, would get that. Repeated over and over again, he would get it. And he would tell him, keep repeating it. I'll be back. And he would come back and he would add to it. For God so loved. And he would learn that after many repetitions. He learned it. Until he could say the whole verse. And then he taught him another verse in the same manner until he could learn a phrase at the time instead of just a word or two. And after months of learning Scripture, the man's mind was as sound as yours. And they released him to go back to live life. The Word of God had healed his mind because it was given to him in the only bits he could take until he could take it all. Jesus declared when he called his disciples that he had called them to be with him. Now, that's pretty amazing to me. Jesus, who had everything and needed nothing, Jesus, who sat beside his father on his throne, Jesus, who had the most beautiful city in the universe, Jesus, who commanded and it is done, Jesus came to be one of us, and he wanted to be with us and wanted us to be with him. Now, imagine that. We don't think of ourselves, in all honesty, as being somebody that's all that charming and all that great, you know, all the time, are we? But Jesus loves us and wants to be with us and wants us to be with him. He loves you. He wants you to be with him. He wants us to love him and receive his love. And as we receive his love, we are enabled to love one another and we enjoy being together. Now, I enjoy the funny things that also happen relative to church. You know, it's okay to laugh about the funny things that happen in church. It's okay. There's laughter in heaven, believe it or not. So those folks who think that Christianity means you have to look like you were weaned on the sour pickle, no, that doesn't represent Christ. That doesn't represent heaven. Uh, heaven is a joyful place. Christianity is a joyful experience. And, and the funny things that happen, in, and how much do the kids teach us, and, and how often do they give us reason for good laughter? I heard about one Sunday school teacher who's warming up the kids by telling them uh, what's the lesson going to be about today. And she said, I'm going to share with you today the story about Lot's wife who looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. And the, the little boy raised his hand immediately, and she said, Okay, Tommy. He said, My mama was driving a station wagon, and 
She looked back, and she turned into a telephone pole. <laughs> and another Sunday school teacher said, okay, kids, said, I want to tell you about a true incident in Scripture. So there was a man named Lazarus, and Lazarus died, and the, the family and the friends came, and they took a hundred pounds of spices and ointments, and they put it all over his body, and they wrapped him from head to toe and put him into a tomb, and then Jesus showed up and raised him from the dead. Now, what do you think those people thought about that? And the little boy said, all that work for nothing. <laughs> they help us, don't they? The kids help us to get the, the per perspectives that we might otherwise miss. I want to share with you today a wonderful portion of God's Word because this is an agricultural area and the people in this area have great understanding of the principles of agriculture. Well, God established those principles and they're wonderful. Can you imagine if we didn't know about sowing and reaping? Jesus said, as a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 4, that this is the master parable. If you don't get this one, you don't get any of them. The master parable based upon the sowing and reaping concept. Well, the wonderful thing about God's principle of sowing and reaping is that he permits us to sow in his kingdom. It's just is as if the wealthiest man in Minnesota said, I will let you sow seed into my beautiful acreage. And the people who work for me will tend to that and produce the harvest, and then they'll bring you the multiplied result. Wow, what a deal. I could go for that. I'm not a farmer, but I could go for a deal like that. Well, God says that he gives to us the privilege of sowing into his kingdom and the kingdom of God watches over what has been sown and produces multiplication and returns it to you for blessing. That's got to be a good deal because God does good deals. And he can afford it because he has possession of all that is. There's some misunderstanding. It's difficult for us to learn without getting some misunderstanding from time to time. But there's some misunderstanding in the area of the subject of tithing. Now, don't get frightened if you're not a tither. We're going to talk about the sowing and reaping concept of sowing into the kingdom of God. And it's an invitation to any believer to participate. And there are thousands of stories from people who have participated in this kind of sowing and reaping who will tell you it works. It's amazing. It's wonderful. God does watch what we're doing regarding how we handle the resources that he entrusts to us. In Genesis chapter 14, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to that portion of Scripture and we will take a look at the meaning of the tithe. We want to, it, with God's help, with the Holy Spirit's enlightenment, we would like to leave here today with a better understanding of what it means to bring the tithe. And I will 
mention to you the last verse in the Scriptures that deals with the subject of tithing directly, and that would be found in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 8. You don't have to turn there. Let me just quote it to you. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Let me ask you some questions. Let's have some interaction. Who is the ever-living one? He has always lived. He lives now. And even while he lay in the tomb, his spirit was alive. He is the ever-living one. Who is that one? Jesus is the ever-living one. Now, how does Jesus receive the tithe? We come into, his, into the Lord's house and we give tithes and offerings. And this scripture, the last one in the New Testament that deals with the subject of tithing, says that he receives it. Well, now, how does this work? I need a little help. I, I want to give away some money. Uh, is there anybody here who would like to have some money? Young man, would you like to have $10? No obligation? Come on up. What is your name? Hunter? Okay, how old are you, Hunter? 13. 13. Okay. I'm going to give you this, and I don't want you to give it back to me after church. It's yours, okay? Now, what do you say? You are welcome. Thank you for helping me. Now, if you'll help me just a little further, how much of that is tithe? All right, which would be? $2. You like this kind of tither? <laughs> well, actually, Hunter, it'd just be $1. And so I'm going to give you the tithe as well, because that way you can give the tithe and you still got the 10. Is that a fair deal? You feel good about that? You don't have to give two, but you can give an offering now. If you want to give a $2 offering, you can do that. So he is illustrating this principle from Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 8. Thank you, Hunter. Appreciate your help. Now, the Scripture says, Here men that die receive tithes. We're all under the sentence of death. Even the clergymen, even the pastors, they're under the sentence of death. Which part of Hunter received the gift? His hand? Are we, did you see that? Were you watching? Some of you, what were you watching? <clears throat> the money? <laughs> Couldn't see the hand for the money. The hand, which is a part of his body. What is the church? Here men that die receive tithes, the body. Which part of Hunter smiled and said, thank you? His mouth is a part of his head. And what is Christ to the church? So I didn't put the money in his mouth, but yet his head said, thank you as if the head had received it. As a matter of fact, the head did receive it, didn't it? The body took hold of it, but the head received it. We are the body of Christ. We bring the tithe, but the head receives it. That's what the Scripture says. There, 
where he is, he receives it. Wow. Now, if you love Jesus, that makes tithing pretty easy, doesn't it? That I get to bring it and he receives it so that he can keep absolute account to know how to bless me in response because he has already committed himself not only to bless me, but he has committed to protect me. He promises that for those who are faithful to put him first in their finances. Now, does God love money? No, he doesn't love it. He loves you. He doesn't love money. Well, then why is, does he say so much about it? Because so many of us love money. That's why he says so much about it. And it is disastrous for us because if, if we love money, it's so easy to slip into idolatry. If I love God and I don't love money, and, and isn't that interesting, the Bible is a book of love, and it says that I'm to love God and I'm to love you, and we're to love one another, and we're to love the lost, but it says don't love the stuff, <laughs> don't love the money. Because if I love the money, it's too painful for me to tithe it and to give it. If I love the money, even giving it to God is a pain for me. But if I love him and I don't love the money, I'm free to do what he says to do with it. That's the idea. He delivers us from the pain of idolatry. And that's painful. Because the world loves money. It's their favorite God. But it would, it's a disaster if it happens to the believer. Now in Genesis 14, we have the story about Abraham. In fact, his name hasn't even been changed yet to Abraham. Were you aware that when God changed Abram's name to Abraham, making up a covenant is the most serious commitment that can be made, and names are exchanged. God gave his name to Abram, and it was such a sacred name that the Jewish people afterwards would not even say the sacred name, but yet every time they said Abraham, they said the sacred name because God gave his name to Abraham. And God took Abraham's name to himself, and he is still to this very day, he's the God of Abraham. You can pray and say, oh, God of Abraham, he's going to listen to you. If you come in Jesus' name, because he is identified as the God of Abraham, because he made covenant with Abraham. Now, the first part of this covenant that he made with Abraham is found in the 12th chapter of Genesis, verses 1 and 2, and this is what God said there. He said, I am going to bless you, and I am going to make you to be a blessing. Now, that's pretty good, folks, that God commits to bless and one of the reasons he blesses of course is because he loves you the other reason that he blesses you can't bless somebody else if you haven't been blessed how would you bless if you haven't been blessed God knows that I got to be blessed if I'm going to be a blessing that's in everything and so he says Abraham I am going to bless you and I'm going to make you to be a blessing well why is that important to us because Christ came that the blessing of Abraham could come upon us. 
the covenant of blessing is still in force. The covenant of blessing runs perpetually throughout eternity. It's always in effect. It's not like the covenant of law. The ceremonial law was fulfilled and completed. But the covenant of blessing, you'll find in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17, that that blessing, that covenant can never be annulled. It continues forever. And we are included in that covenant, blessed to be a blessing. Well, now, part of that covenant of blessing is illustrated for us shortly after that in chapter 14. The reason God chose to teach us the meaning of the tithe in Genesis 14 is because all of the fundamentals are in that little portion of Scripture. He could have taught us in the first part of the book of Genesis because in the Garden of Eden there was a tree that they were to tend to but not to eat from. The tree that was forbidden to them would bring serious penalties if they violated that. Now Eve said they weren't supposed to touch the tree but Eve was doing like all of us religious folks are inclined to do. She was adding to God's word for safety's sake. Oh, we do that. We do, we do it with our kids. You know, we, we have a rule and then we keep adding to the rule just for safety's sake. And that's what happened to the Jews. They kept adding to the law of God. God gave them 10 rules, basically, to begin with. Well, they had hundreds of rules because they kept adding to it. So Eve, right away, she's our mama. She, you know how mamas are. She's watching out for everybody, and she says, we're not supposed to touch it. Oh, no, God said, dress and keep all the trees of the garden, but do not consume it from this tree. You can eat from all of them. Don't eat from this one. Amazing thing about our forebears, Adam and Eve had the tree of life in the middle of the garden. They didn't eat from it. They ate from the fruit trees and the pecan trees. and you know, They ate from all these trees. But these, there's two trees, the tree of life they're allowed to eat from, the tree of knowledge of good and evil they're not supposed to eat from, that would be the tithing tree. God always has that part which we're not to consume. So God could have taught us there, but he wanted it to be more understanding, and so he delays that. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, he could have taught us because Cain and Abel are coming to worship, and what did Abel bring? Abel brought the firstlings of his flock. First fruits and tithing are synonymous. They're not identical in every respect, but they're synonymous. And so this firstlings means that Abel was a tither. You'll find an interesting thing if you, if you Bible scholars. If you look in the Septuagint version of the Scriptures, you'll see that God addressed Cain, and he said, Cain, thou didst rightly present... Thou didst not rightly divide. Cain decided a tenth was too much. And he became an unhappy camper. Yet 
Abel gave a more excellent sacrifice, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 11. And God, still to this day, is testifying of the first hero of faith. Abel was that first hero. Did you ever notice that? And what is he known for? Because he put God first in his possessions. And God said he gave a more excellent sacrifice, a more excellent offering. Well, now, here in the 14th chapter of Genesis, let me give you a little contextual information for Abram and his nephew Lot. They have both been so blessed until the herdsmen are quarreling over grazing rights. Have you ever watched any Westerns? Now, ladies, if you wonder why we men like Westerns, I'll tell you, they're simple. <laughs> it's not hard to follow a Western. Doesn't take any effort at all to keep them separated, the bad guys and the good guys, you know. In life, sometimes it's hard to figure them out and separate them, but in Westerns, it's clear cut. There was a, when television first came out, kids, there was a time when there was no TV. I'm old enough to remember that. Hey, kids, there was a time when television first showed up that there was only black and white, no color. Uh, honest before God, there used to be nothing but black and white. And, uh, and a lot of snow, and we watched it anyway. <laughs> but there was a, an elderly couple in one church. They got the first television set of anybody in their church, little black and white TV. And they watched it seriously. And they came to church on a Wednesday night, and a little gray-haired lady said, Pastor, I got a burning testimony if you'll let me give it. Okay, you can give your testimony. She said, you know, Paul and me got us a new TV. And we were watching that thing the other night. And this beautiful couple with two pretty little kids moved out west to Homestead. And these old mean cowboys started picking on them. Said, them old cowboys, they're so mean. Said, Paul and me got so burdened for that little family. Till we just got down and started praying. And said, we hadn't any sooner got up from prayer than this masked man and an Indian came running out of the woods. And they ran those old cowboys off. Don't you tell me the Lord don't answer prayer. <laughs> well, now, Abram and Lot had cowboys fussing with each other. They're herdsmen because there wasn't, they'd been blessed so much till they're crowding each other out. And so Abram says, you take first choice of the land and I'll take what's left. Yeah, now that's pretty bold when an uncle tells a nephew, you can have first choice of what God has promised to me. But you see, Abram knew something. Abram knew he had God's commitment to bless him, not just depending upon circumstances. He had God's promise to bless him. It didn't matter if he's down in the well-watered grassy plains or he's up here in these scrubby hills he's got a commitment from God so he can afford to be generous he'd rather trust in God than in the grass how many of you rather trust in God than in the grass well see you're same as our great great spiritual father Abraham and so Lot looked at the well-watered plains. He said, you need grass and you need water. If you're going to have a lot of animals, I'll go down there. And Abram says, that's fine. 
So he pitched his tent towards Sodom. When you make a selfish choice, you begin to move in the world's direction. And he wound up living in a homosexual city. Oh, but doesn't God love homosexuals? Yes, he does. Well, then, what's the problem? The problem then was the same problem now. The homosexuals wanted to be saved in their sins, not from their sins. That's the problem. That's the hitch. It's still the problem today. He wound up living in a homosexual city, and his soul was vexed every day of his life. They also had to pay high taxes down there. Oh, we got some politicians. They think that the answer to everything is more taxes, more taxes. You, can't they see? Somebody help me. When church is over, somebody come and tell me. The, don't these buzzards understand that there's an end to that? You can't just take everybody's everything. But that's their solution. Time after time, raise taxes. As Hillary Clinton said, we tax everything that moves and we tax everything that doesn't move. And she was proud of it. Hope you're not her fan. <laughs> they paid high taxes down in the valley. And after 12 years of high taxes, they rebelled. And in the 13th year, they didn't pay. And in the 14th year, here came Keterleomer, the king that was collecting the tribute. He had an alliance with three other kings. They had four powerful armies. And they swept up and down the valley, and they conquered every army that came out against them. And on the last day of fighting, their four armies whipped five armies, and they took every transportable possession that was worth having from 11 cities. And away they go. They also took hostages. Oh, Lot and his family, hostage. One man escaped, and he came up to Abram in the hills, and he said, your kinsman has been taken captive. Keterleomer has defeated every army. It's total defeat. And taken all the possessions, the transportable food, the gold, the silver, the jewels. They got it all. And Abram called his household servants together. It was really his, his shepherds and his cowboys, you know. And he said, we're going after them. Hmm. Now, wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute there, Abram. They got four armies, just whipped five armies in one day. And we got no armies. We got 318 cowboys and shepherds, and we're going after them. It's like the American general. <laughs> his men came to him and in World War II and said, Sir, the enemy has us completely surrounded. What, what should we do? He said, Don't let one of them get away. <laughs> and so and here, here they go in pursuit of these marauding armies, and they rode for a hundred miles, and they caught them. And Abram divided his little, his little army of shepherds and cowboys into two branches and they attacked and they didn't just fight them they whipped them 
They didn't just whip them. The Bible said Abram slaughtered them. How would he do that? He's a man of God. He had God's direction, what he's doing. And he had God's blessing on what he's doing. And he takes all the hostages that they had captured, and he takes all the wealth, and here he comes back. He's got 100 miles to go back. And when they come riding in, well, that's where we want to start. Genesis 14. When they come riding back, let's start reading here with verse 16. Chapter 14, verse 16. And he, that is Abram, brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Keterleomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. Now he's welcomed back by a king. We won't dwell much here except he's going to encounter two kings when he gets back to his territory. One is the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom is interested in what happened here because he just got defeated, totally defeated. And so the scripture does not record that Abram even said so much as good morning to the king. I'm sure he did. But the reason I, I suppose that there is no recording of any conversation between the king of Sodom and Abram is because Abram is going to worship and he will not stop for a king. That reflects on some Christians who on the way to worship will stop for a third cousin that just showed up. But he wouldn't stop for a king. And because he didn't stop, the king followed to see where he's going and what's he going to do. Then in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now this man, Melchizedek, he is a, he's an unusual guy. As a matter of fact, the Bible says of Melchizedek, I, I, I challenge you to try and find anybody as unusual as Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't have a father and didn't have a mother. Did you ever meet anybody like that? <laughs> I like to do a little poll. How many of you had a mother and a father? Could I see your hands? Okay. None of us are Melchizedek. <laughs> he didn't have a father. And didn't. The Bible says he didn't have a beginning and he will never have an end. Hmm. The Bible says Melchizedek was a king of righteousness, a king of Salem, that is king of peace. And he's a high priest forever. Forever. Now, so there's, there's easy uh, arguing about this, and so I don't want to get us into an argument here because some people just believe that Melchizedek, he's just another guy. I have problems with that myself. Uh, when we get to heaven, who's going to be our high priest? Okay. 
Well, this is Melchizedek. Jesus is a high priest forever in the rank of or after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek has no end, so he's going to be there. What are we going to do with him? <laughs> we surely don't need but one high priest in heaven. He's going to be there, and Jesus is a high priest in his rank or order. Wow. Well, now, here's how I resolve this dilemma for myself. You, you can do what you want. I believe this was Jesus making one of his Old Testament appearances. He did that, you know, a number of times. And I think this is one of them. Now we don't have a problem. If this Melchizedek and Jesus are the same, there's not going to be a problem. But otherwise, you know, you figure out an answer, let me know. But here's the thing that makes me want to say, hold the horses. He served bread and wine. Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. What is bread and wine to a born-again believer in Montevideo, Minnesota in 2011? Communion. What are they doing serving Communion. This unusual man, Melchizedek, who for sure, if it's not Jesus, he's still the priest of Jesus. It's the priesthood of Jesus, at least. And he's serving communion. Did you know that God takes the time to answer such questions as that? He does. He answers it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8 where he tells us that the gospel was preached to Abraham and he believed it and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. How did you get salvation? How did you get righteousness imputed unto you? Was it just because you were so good looking or so smart or so good? Uh-uh. No, it wasn't. It was imputed unto you the same as to Abraham. You believed the gospel. Jesus said of Abram, in John chapter 8, he said, Abram delighted to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. <laughs> wow. Abram was a Christian. He believed in the Jesus who's coming. What does your pastor say when he serves communion? If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to partake of the elements of communion. It was the same for them. Abram had taught his people about Jesus, who's coming. And Melchizedek, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, serves communion. Wow. They were having a regular church service, is what they were having, as a celebration of the victory that God had given. And he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abram, and he said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Well, now, why would he make such a statement? God, who is possessor of heaven and earth. That was really Melchizedek's sermon that day. This is the message. Because your security and my security is based upon that God owns all the stuff. 
<laughs> he owns the universe. He created it, didn't he? This Bible is a deed. A deed is a legal document that describes a property and tells who owns it and tells how he got it. This is a legal deed. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's how he got it. He created it. It's his. He said, well, there's an awful lot of bad people out there own big parts of it. No, they don't. <laughs> The day God says, turn it loose, they'll turn it loose, I promise you. It's his. And he can take it back. He can assert his ownership anytime he wants. God, possessor of heaven and earth, if my father was the richest man in Minnesota and he loved me more than anything in the world, you think I'd be worried about my next meal? You think I'd be worried about what am I going to wear and what am I going to ride in? And No, I wouldn't be worried about that. If my father was the richest man in Minnesota and he loved me more than anything in the world, I wouldn't be worried about that stuff. And Jesus said, hey, your heavenly father knows what you need. He loves you. God is love. What are you worrying about? <laughs> Quit worrying. That's not a Christian occupation. He loves you, and he owns all the stuff. <laughs> say, well, why didn't he give me a whole lot more of the stuff? Oh, could you handle it? So if he give me a million dollars, I'd pay tithes. Oh, would you now? Jesus said you wouldn't. If you're not doing it now, he said you wouldn't. He said if you haven't been faithful in the little, you won't be faithful in the much. So don't tell him that if you gave me this much millions or, you know, at some point along the way, I would obey. I'd be faithful. No, don't tell him that because he already knows whether you would or not. And the way he knows is what are you doing now? But he's possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the most high God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek tithes of all. Now, let's, let's just do a quick little cal calculation here. There's no way for us to be precise, okay? But let's just do a reasonable calculation. Let's say that in those 11 cities, there was at least a million dollars worth of transportable wealth in each city. Would, would that be reasonable enough? I mean, shoot. In Montevideo, there's more than a million dollars of wealth. And you're only a, what, 5,000 population city. Okay, so 11 cities, million dollars apiece. $11 million on that caravan, and Abram pays his tithes, that would be $1,100,000. Ah, that's a pretty good Sunday. He pays his tithes. And then the king of Sodom says, it's right here, the king of Sodom says, this stuff is all yours. You're welcome to keep it. I want the souls. The people. Hmm. Who's he speaking for? Melchizedek speaks for the kingdom of God and king of Sodom speaking for the other world. Yeah, you, you can have the stuff. Abram says, I know that it's mine. You don't have to tell me that it's mine. I wouldn't have paid tithes on it if it weren't mine. When it was yours, you lost it. I recovered it. 
but I don't want any of it. I don't even want so much as a shoelace. And boy, here comes a message from the heart of Abraham that we need to remember. He told us the reason why he would not take any of the stuff. He paid tithes on it. He knew it was his, but then he gave it all away. He said, give it back to the people that used to own it because I'm called to be a blessing. But he said, you might someday say you made me rich. And that would take glory from my God. And so Abram was able to walk away from $9,900,000 or how many ever zillions it was. He was able to walk away from it because he loved God so much. He wanted to protect God's reputation. And he said, you might just reflect on God someday and say, you made me rich when I kept the stuff. No. God is my source. He is my sustainer. He is my covenant, God and partner, and I will not have it. I don't want any of it, and he walked away from it. If I love God enough that if he tells me to walk away from the stuff, can I do it? If I love him enough, I can, unless I love the stuff. <laughs> if I love the stuff too much, I can't walk away from it. And if he says for me to give a tithe, I can't do it if I love the stuff too much. And Abram says, I love God. I not only can give the tithe of the stuff that I jeopardized me and my men for, I can give it all away. Now here we have Abraham, who is the father of the faithful, Old Testament and New. We're still seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.29. Awana students and teachers. We're seed of Abraham. Because we have believed in Christ, we have become Christ's generation, and he's a son of Abraham. We have as our example our spiritual father, Abraham. And what does the, the Lord tell us in the Ten Commandments? Honor thy father and thy mother. And he's my spiritual father, and he's my example. That's why God chose to teach us right here the meaning and the understanding of the tithe. And we have right here the understanding that the tithe has always been unto Jesus. He pays tithes unto the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the eternal priesthood. There's no end to it. Jesus' priesthood is forever, and that's why we will tithe during the millennium. That's why we'll tithe beyond the millennium. We will always tithe as long as we handle material things, and as long as there's increase, we will tithe for all eternity. That's biblical. Because Jesus, the unending, unchangeable priest. So I think we all might do well to stay in practice for it. Now, let me finish this. And then I want to give you God's illustration, and we're through. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. 
Now, after these things, what were these things? Abram going to rescue the people who had been taken hostage, including his nephew and his family, bringing back all the wealth and blessing all the people in those cities that had been devastated. After these things, that included the worship service where he brought his tithes unto the Lord and acknowledged by receiving communion his faith in Christ and by paying his tithes his faith in the commitment to God through the covenant of promise. I am thy shield. Do you, do you know how many times the Bible says fear not? 365. There you go. 365 times. Every morning when you get up, you've got a brand new fear not waiting for you from God's Word. Be not afraid. Because we live a life of faith, not a life of fear. And that's why he went to the bother to give us 365 of these fear nots and be not afraids. One for every day. So you, you can't get away from it. He doesn't want you living in fear. Incidentally, did you know one of the names of Jesus is first fruits? Yeah, that's one of his classifications, one of his titles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's the first fruits. Why would he have the same name as the tithe? Because he is a tithe. God gave us his first and his best. Because God asked us to be like himself, and he gave us his first and his best. He says, I am thy shield. Was he a pretty good shield going against four professional armies and defeating them with shepherds and cowboys? Was, was God a pretty good shield? Abram didn't bring back a wounded man or a dead man. They were totally victorious. One of the greatest military victories of all time. And here's the most, this is one of the most astounding things in all the Old Testament. God says to Abram, I am your exceeding great reward. What did God say? He said, I, I give you me. Abram, I give myself to you. Now, love always wants to give. Did you ever notice that? When I fell in love with this pretty lady here, I wanted to give. I wanted to take her to restaurants and feed her, and I wanted to buy her pretty things. And, but the main thing I wanted to give her was me. Now, you guys don't chuckle you the same way. And God is love, and he wants to give himself away. Can he trust you with the gift? Can he trust you to give himself to you? Open your Bibles to Leviticus 23, and we will conclude with God's own illustration. There are seven feasts of Jehovah. Every one of the feasts is about Jesus. You knew that, right? Passover, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, he is the one who lived a perfect life, sinless life, 
and he enables us to walk after him. That doesn't mean you're going to accomplish that in every respect every day. It means that that's the direction we're moving, following in his footsteps so that we can live the life of the unleavened bread. No sin in my life. I do not willfully choose to commit sin. I am determined not to do that. And if, if it should happen, I'm going to be quick to clear that account with him. The feast of unleavened bread and then the feast of first fruits. You mean they got a feast on first fruits? Yeah, they do. It's an important one. Because after God has redeemed us and taught us how to walk the good life, he wants us to be in the relationship with him that we exercise his lordship over our possessions. See, Christians have a problem. The Bible calls this stuff in our pockets filthy lucre. Well, now, I thought you were supposed to get rid of all filthiness when you became a Christian. What are you doing carrying that filthy stuff around in your pocket? Uh, the Bible also calls it unrighteous mammon. And you've got some over there in the bank, I suspect, with your name attached to it. We've got a problem. We're supposed to be done with unrighteousness, aren't we? So what are you going to do? Well, let me tell you a good this will be worth your trip this morning. Here's the solution to one of the biggest problems the Christians have to face. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 16, he says, if the first fruit be holy, then the lump is holy. Did you get it? I don't have filthy lucre in my pocket because I'm a tither. When Jesus touched a leper, the Pharisees thought Jesus had broken the law. But you know they could never do anything about it because when Jesus touched a leper, he was no longer a leper. He was cleansed. And when he touches possession, when I bring the first fruits unto him, if the first fruit be holy, the lump is holy. He solves our problem for us. Well, <clears throat> here's what he says beginning in verse 9. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, this is Leviticus 23, verse 9. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you become into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. Oh, does it still work like that? Well, God gave you life. They hurry back to the temple, and all night long the farmers come bringing their bundles of first fruits. They pile them up. And on Sunday morning, the priest begins the ceremony. He sacrifices a lamb. Well, they just killed thousands and thousands of lambs for Passover. And yet they do it again. Just kill a lamb. Why? We can only make it in a sin-cursed world, dealing with unrighteous mammon and filthy lucre and a sin-crossed world, we can only make it by the power of the blood. That's our strength. They even pour out a wine offering saying, again, it's the blood, it's the blood. When they have finished with the ceremony, 
the priest takes his special bundle and he raises it up and he does a... Oh, you can call the Jewish synagogue and ask them, uh, what is the shape of that wave offering in the first fruits offering? I mean, what is the pattern? They say, well, it's kind of like a T. <laughs> Bless their hearts. They made the sign of the cross because one day Jesus, God's first fruits gift to us, to his church, will hang on a cross and take my place, take my punishment, be the first one to conquer death, never to die again. When the ceremony is over, the high priest comes to the steps, and in the courtyard there's thousands of farmers because they brought their first fruits offerings and they're waiting for this. You'll recognize this, but we call it something different. What we call the Great Commission really started out as the first fruits proclamation. Listen to it. Now the first fruits have been sanctified wholly unto God, and now the whole harvest is sanctified. You may harvest your crops. Until he says that, they can't eat one grain of the new harvest. Boy, that'll help you pay your tithes. <laughs> Get hungry after a while. Jesus said it to us as he was ascending back to heaven. Now, now what? Now I, the first fruits offering, has been sanctified wholly unto God. And now the whole harvest is ready. Go you into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news, the glorious gospel to every creature. I've paid for them all. Go tell them. <laughs> the Great Commission started out as the first fruits proclamation. The symbolism is so stunning. Out there when they go to cut the, from the three rings in the field, why did they have to wait until sunset? Not just to change the day, but because remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, what God the Father did? He turned the lights off on the whole world. It wasn't an eclipse. He turned the lights off on the whole world. Why? Because he was saying, I will let you harvest my son. That is the plan. But you'll not harvest him in the light because he is the light of the world. And so God turned the lights off when they harvested his son as the first fruits offering. Some people say, I don't pay tithes because it leaves an empty place in my bank account. Oh, it's supposed to. That's part of the meaning. You see, Jesus, as the first fruits of God to us, Jesus had to leave some empty places for this thing to work. The first empty place that we know about that Jesus left was he was sitting on his throne beside of his father, and he created all that is, and without him was not anything made that was made. Every angel that was created, the first thing he saw was the smiling face of Jesus. But one day the father said, son, it's time to go. And Jesus got off that throne, and the throne sat empty for 34 years. 
nine months while he was carried in Mary's womb, and 33 years and some weeks. Why do you suppose Jesus began his ministry at age 30, which that was the age for priests and rabbis? He began at 30, but it, it stopped when he was just past 33. He tithed his life. He was a tithe, but he tithed his life as well. It was important to him. The second empty place, that old rugged cross, that was my cross. That was my sentence. That was my death and yours. But he took it. And he left the cross empty. But look what it cost to leave an empty cross. Meaning, I'm paid for. In Roman times, when a prisoner had served his sentence, they had his bill of criminal activity on the door. And they would mark it and put total last die. It is finished. And that's what Jesus said. My crimes, your crimes, were against him. And the last thing he says about my sins, he said, it is finished. I just paid for it. Look what it cost him. There's one more empty place. There's three of them. You're ahead of me, aren't you? The old empty tomb. I was doomed to the tomb. I had no way out. Did you? You have any way out? But my Lord went in, took my place, and he left it empty. And so will I, because my faith is in him. You mean I would hesitate to make empty places in every increase that he gives me when I know the empty places he left behind when he redeemed me? No, I will celebrate him forever. He's my Lord. He's my God. He's my Redeemer. He's my Sustainer. He is my destiny. And I will celebrate him forever. He's first in my possessions. Bow your heads with me. If you're here this morning and Jesus is not first in your life, I want to give you an opportunity to ask him to come into your life. Let that payment he made at Calvary count for you. It's real easy because he's already done the hard part. He said, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you'd like to ask Jesus to come into your life this morning, because he loved you so much, he has already taken your penalty, please don't take it again yourself. Please don't pay the penalty with your own life trying to pay for your sins. If you'd like Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, while the believers are praying, just slip up your hand and say, I would like for him to be my Lord and Savior. Slip up your hand. All right, I'm going to ask the believers to pray a prayer with me, a confession prayer. This is not a trick. Don't say it if you don't mean it. I'm not trying to trick you. 
But if you can mean it, then say this prayer with me. Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for creating me. Thank you for redeeming me. And thank you for your precious word that tells me the good news about my glorious Savior. And thank you for the privilege of representing you to my generation that wherever I go, whatever I do, you're first in my life, Lord. And I'll worship you with the first fruits. I will honor you and celebrate you by showing that I love you more than all the stuff. And I thank you that you've already committed that if I put you first, you will bless me, you will increase me, you will protect me. In Jesus' name, amen.